<laughs> All right, good morning. You're tuned in to Little Raleigh Radio. This is Lawn Darts Radio. It's your Sunday guide to dedicated leisure right here in the city of Oaks. My name is Jacob in the studio with me as uh, per usual for our second episode of our second series. Yeah. It's Benny Mac. Good morning, Benny Mac. Good morning, Jacob. I don't know. I can't hear myself. You can't hear yourself. I, I can, can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you very okay. well. There we go. All right. Oh, uh, now I can hear myself. Okay. <laughs> you can control your own headphone volume. That's right. <laughs> You're going to need that later. Yes. (laughs) We are going to need that later. (laughs) And uh, hopefully everyone else has their headphones turned up as well, because it is a uh, not only a beautiful morning here in Raleigh, but a beautiful morning here in the studio, because we are joined by our first guest. Yeah, first guest of the season. We have Bruce Miller, the historian for Oakwood Cemetery. Yes. And Robin Simonton, the director of Oakwood Cemetery. Good morning. How are you all? <laughs> they have uh, they have written a book, uh, a new book. It's all about murder, and crimes of passion, crimes of family passion. dynasties, scandal, there, you know? gilded age scandal. I mean, it's something out of a it's something out of like a lifetime movie mystery or something or something. But out of, better, oh, but better, <laughs> even better. It probably it probably should be on masterpiece. There we go. There I, we yeah. go. Get some get some violin introductions and mm-hmm. yes, some some. This is some Downton Abbey type <laughs> stuff. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe <laughs> maybe maybe maybe. <laughs> but it is some Downton Raleigh st- stuff. It is some Downton Raleigh stuff. <laughs> the the book is called Life and Death in High Places. The subheading is a true story of family scandal and homicide. Ooh, ooh, that's that's some heavy stuff for a Sunday morning. Yes, he is. Yes, it is. But uh, so, just give us a give us a little taste. What what, what is this book about? The uh, book the the title is sums up what the book is about. Uh, life and death in high places. The high places, of course, are societal places. Sure. Though there are there are some actual high places that are covered in the book but um uh life and death uh the the book takes place almost entirely in 1903 and we wanted to give folks a taste of uh raleigh in 1903 and thus the opening of the book takes you into downtown raleigh on a as if you were a sightseer going down Fayetteville street and uh becoming acquainted with the new south this is Raleigh after the Civil War, and um, we, we want folks to uh, understand the life, but what came of it. In fact, uh, if you'll allow me, uh, we sum it up in, in really one sentence, if you will, out of the book, if I can find it sure, here. Sure, sure. Understand, Raleigh was doing well after the Civil War. Uh, as a city, as a whole. That doesn't mean everybody was doing well. Some families in particular were doing well, and we introduce you to those families, thus the life in the title. And I think Robin will speak more of that. I think that was the part of it that interested her the most. But um, the the line I'm going to pick out uh, is, uh, yet for all the advantages... That the new wealth and social social position might bring to those in high places, 
it would not exempt them from life's slings and arrows. See, we work a little bit of Hamlet in there. I was going to say, here's some Shakespeare. Would not exempt them from life's slings and arrows, in some cases the result of outrages of their own making, thus the death. So you have life, the societal aspect of the New South, uh, which, again, I think, I don't want to speak for, but I think that interests Raleigh, uh, interests uh, Robin more than uh, other parts. Uh, and the death part, w- which becomes quite obvious up front, uh, and the consequences of that, in particular, what is to this day one of the greatest criminal trials in the history of the city. Huh. I will. I'll, I will mention right now that uh, another uh, 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 adjunct of this book, if you will, is that one chapter is going to be published in the journal of the North Carolina Bar Association, due out uh, the beginning of uh, next month, I believe. March. Isn't that right? Yeah. So again, there are various facets of this story, um, most of which are all tied up in the title of the book. Yeah. You talked about the beginning of, of uh, in the beginning, you're, you're, you're painting the picture of, of Raleigh post-Civil War. And Jacob and I were talking about this earlier, um, about just, just how much the city had boomed after the Civil War. Yeah, you, you, well, you'd always heard, you know, that Raleigh was a planned capital, but the, the book really gets at the, these families having discussions on where you know, they want to spread their influence. They're they're almost like you could visually seeing them slicing up the city and then having feuds between their churches. And um, it just uh, was was delightful. And I think I've never really felt uh, before. I haven't finished the book, but, you know, um, in your head, um, you start to think of the 1900s as kind of the, the beginning of the modern age. Mm-hmm. And it's I it didn't really resonate with me until I started this book how much uh, the Civil War and the Reconstruction really had on where Raleigh was going to grow um, the uh, which comes out once you start explaining uh, the families and how they they got here yeah. Robin tell us a little bit about the families that that are involved with this well there are four families um, the Haywoods which have been around Raleigh since uh, the early, early days of Raleigh. In fact, Haywood Hall is the oldest house on its original foundation still in Raleigh today, um, a museum, a wedding venue. Um, the patriarch, John Haywood, was the uh, the treasurer for the state of North Carolina. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Miller. Um, and, you um, know I will. I know you will. <laughs> I count on it. And he was a, he was a long-serving treasurer, wasn't he? I believe so. Was it like 40 Indeed. years? Or? Yes. No, he, uh, he died in the 20s, and, oh. uh, but he was treasurer for the rest of his life when he came to Raleigh in the 1790s till he died in the uh, 1820s. The, uh, 1820s. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that's, and that's a family that we still see in Raleigh today, still Haywoods everywhere in Raleigh. Um, the Skinners, uh, Reverend Thomas Skinner, the patriarch of that family in Raleigh, was the pastor of First Baptist Church, responsible for it being moved to its current location on Capitol Square, um, across from where it had originally been. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ludlow Skinner was one of his many children. Um, and, um, oh my gosh, it's too early in the morning. <laughs> um, the Tuckers. The Tuckers. Um, uh, the Tuckers are not necessarily the... They don't play probably as strong of a role as uh, the, the Haywoods and the Skinners, 
But the Tuckers, um, definitely an important family in Raleigh. They had a dry goods store that was very well known. Um, and the matriarch, Florence Tucker, oversaw, the, once her son died, the over, um, oversaw the building of the Tucker, the construction of the Tucker building in downtown Raleigh, um, where Ernest Haywood had his office. So you can see that they're all beginning to cross a little bit. Um, and the final family, you know, a lot of people may not know about in Raleigh, but the Winders. Um, perhaps one of the biggest, uh, most hated men in the Civil War was the patriarch of the Winder family. He oversaw the, um, is it the Andersonville prison? North oh. Carolina, North the Carolina. Confederate prison system. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, but he did not live, he was not, he's not part of this story, except to say that that's like the patriarch of the family. But John Cox, um, John Winder was the head of the seaboard rail company had his own they had their own private cars i love that train cars taking them places <laughs> seems so uh gilded age to me so bougie um, yeah <laughs> and then you th feel like a lot of the other families once they would get married were taking his trains exactly. to get right. on they, their honeymoons that's how they would honeymoon they'd go exactly to different right. parts of the country on a winder private winder rail a winder rail <laughs> holy cow i love it so those are the four families um you know, but again, the Haywoods and the um, Skinners obviously played the, the biggest role. But of course, the Tuckers and the Winders had married into those families. So. And so uh, that uh, uh, is, is just a, that, that's a brief introduction of what we do go into in, in some detail yeah. about that social life. The, the kids kids growing up together and what they how they spent their time uh quite a bit different than today and newspapers uh, were different than uh, than then oh um, thankfully because they told us everything right they went right. and played cards here they went to go to a dance here i mean they performed at a masquerade ball here. i mean it was unbelievable that's where i fell down the rabbit hole a little bit because the newspapers really tell you a whole lot more you know the columns talked a lot more about what the social activities were and yeah. so you got to see how these families really interacted um from just the public record well you know we didn't have we did have some diaries and some letters later on about other family members but in the beginning it was just kind of seeing what we could find their references to because the paper was telling us an awful lot about what was going on in raleigh in that era and so these the the, the children and these families are you know not only living in the in the city they're doing business with each other and they're actually and they're commingling through marriage is that correct absolutely uh the um, <coughs> excuse me many of the the, the ma marriages that we describe i think all take place in christ episcopal church even the baptists spend uh spend their time it seems in christ episcopal <laughs> church <laughs> The, oh, apparently, uh, it's not in the book or is a claim, but we have heard that one reason that uh, the Baptists spent a lot of time with in Christ Church is because uh, it was alcohol in Christ Church that you wouldn't <laughs> find among the Baptists. So, that sounds but, uh, about right. <laughs> we do not we do not make that claim or or take up that issue in the book, but they do. We have they, heard that. <laughs> yes, they, uh, you know, ironically, the two churches, Christ Church and uh, First Baptist, which which really d dominate the book as far as uh, uh, the church aspect goes, they face each other. You know, you go out the front door one, you go straight into the front door of the other across uh, Capitol Square. So um, it made a very nice uh, 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 balance for us there. 
Well, and, you know, they didn't live in a vacuum. So, yeah, they were marrying each other. They were um, socializing together. And um, it just makes the story more complicated in some ways because they're all kind of intermarrying each other. But um, sometimes there are people with multiple people with the same name, different generations then. And you're like, who's this? <laughs> um, but so there is, um, you know, it was not in a vacuum. They definitely interacted with each other a great deal. And is it because mainly they were like, they were at, 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 at a part of this social strata, this high social strata, this high socioeconomic status, and that they were prominent business people at the Haywoods. You know, the Hay Ernest Haywood was a was a prominent lawyer mm -hmm. and everything. Is that is that why they were just so, you know, they were among each other? I definitely think so. But we also have to remember Raleigh was a very small town. Mm. But um, but yes, they were definitely the upper echelon, the elite of society here in Raleigh. So they were at the same dances, they were at the same events, at the same card parties and things like that. Um, so they that's the only people they were really socializing with was this upper echelon. Gotcha. Well, do we yeah, uh, which then I guess is uh, the intermingling is what led to, um, I guess, eventually the <laughs> the actual crime, exactly which we haven't, right. we haven't, haven't explained what, <laughs> what the crime is. <laughs> So maybe the life, uh, not the death. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. We've only covered the book, book title. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a break. See, let's play a couple, uh, play some music right. and come back and and talk about the death. Talk about death. <laughs> now that we know the life, murder. Uh, we're gonna start with some uh, Fendel Mundo. Uh, the song's called La Distancia, and then after that, uh, where are we gonna go? I don't know, but we'll get there together. It's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be a journey here on Little Rally Radio. Good morning. You're tuned in to Little Raleigh Radio. It's about 27 minutes after 10 o'clock on your Sunday morning. This is Londarts Radio. You just heard the murder capital performing the song The Lie Becomes the Self. Part of that, King Tough, Pebbles in the Street. Uh, and me and Ben are joined this morning by Bruce Miller and Robin Simonton of Oakwood Cemetery and authors of a beautiful, fantastic new book that's also getting excerpts published in the North Carolina Bar Association magazine in March. It's called Life and Death in High Places. And uh, before the music set, we were talking about how kind of four families were dominating uh, the future of Raleigh. They were they were the moral center of the city. They were the social center of the city. And they were the economic center of the city. The Skinners, the Tuckers, the Haywoods, and the Winders. Uh, and, uh, and then um, once, well, the music was playing, uh, it was pointed out that most of these families left Raleigh. There was an inciting incident that uh, kind of said, nope, we're all going to have to, even though our families are married and well-integrated, we're going to go our separate ways uh, due to tragic events in 1903. So uh, what happened? <laughs> or what was perceived to have happened? Oh, that, that's the other half of the book title. <laughs> Let's get to the <laughs> death. <laughs> um Yes, once we've, uh, we hope, we've introduced the reader to uh, Raleigh, uh, post-war Raleigh, the Guild, Gilded Age Raleigh, which is the New South, what was called the New South down here. Um, we have this incident that occurs on February 20, 21st. 21st. Well, I guess right up. before the incident, you, there were some other, so the, you had these, these young Turks, these new folks that were there to make innovation and make change and there's all this optimism and then um, I guess their families were suffering upsets from you know well there were but those were what was going on was sort of under the table until the overt 
uh, incident on February 21st. And uh, on that occasion, in front of what one newspaper said was 100 witnesses, I think that's an exaggeration, <laughs> but it had the effect of 100. In fact, when this case went to trial, which it did, there were 200 witnesses that appeared. 200, 200 wit witnesses. And we'll talk about the legal aspect of this in a minute. But um, in front of a lot of people... Saturday uh, afternoon. Uh, uh, Haywood, yes. The Saturday <laughs> afternoon, far busier in those days than it is today, I think, even, because the courthouse and post office and so forth were open, so people were conducting uh, legal business that nowadays you'd have to do during the week. Um, but um, so busy time, and it's at that point, all of a sudden, I think to everyone's surprise, except the people involved, uh, Ernest Haywood, of the Haywood, the, the, one of the leading lights of the Haywood clan, pulls out his pistol and guns down young Ludlow Skinner, who who uh, drops. After, uh, there were two shots, one of which it turned out hit Ludlow Skinner, and he falls onto the tracks that run down Fayetteville Street, and uh, probably at that point he dies on the spot. A crowd gathers round, people who we've, in some cases, introduced already uh, or, or not. Again, lots of people in the area, and he's picked up and carried into the Johnson's Drugstore, which is on the corner now where the PNC building is now, I believe, mm -hmm. um, and uh, lays him out on the counter, and a local doctor comes by and de de declares that he, he, he's dead. Um, and that, there's the great scandal. Ernest Haywood gunning down a man who is his relative. Uh, Ludlow Skinner, uh, this is more Robin's uh, realm than mine, but Ludlow Skinner's uh, wife was uh, uh, Octavia, and... Um, her sister was Gertrude. Her, her sister was Gertrude, who... Um, was um, having some sort of relationship with Ernest Haywood. Um, and there had been a child born of that relationship in September of 1902, which I think is adding a lot of stress to this family. Yeah. Um, the baby was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, under the direction of Ernest, supposedly. Um, why they, she was, they had to be moved north because she was sickly, Gertrude was. But that led a lot of st stress to the Skinner family because I believe, I think we believe that the daughters, Gertrude had been married before. Ernest Haywood had been her estate attorney for her husband's estate. Um, and the daughters from that marriage were, I believe, being taken care of by the Skinners. And so, you know, there's a lot of scandal going on in Raleigh, North Carolina that's not being talked about in the newspaper until this shooting happens. And then the New York Times that night runs a story about this killing on Fayetteville Street in Raleigh, and it goes all the way to San Francisco. It goes to the Montana newspaper. I mean, it is everywhere that this little town, that the leading families of this little town, um, that there's been a murder. And then within a day, there is some talk of perhaps there was a scandal. Perhaps there was a, a secret marriage. Perhaps Ooh. there was a baby. Um, because Gertrude was going around town, if she was even in town, but the ba she had not been in town since the baby was born, um, even before then. She was calling herself Mrs. Ernest Haywood. 
Um, now Haywood, <laughs> as a very good lawyer, knew when he was asked, had there or was it his lawyer that said this? When he was asked, had there been a, had had they been married? He said there was no ceremony. No ceremony, uh, which is very good. <laughs> which is lawyer speak. <laughs> yeah. A lawyer's dodge. Yeah. So I mean, so this is all building, like you talked about before this killing. This was building. Now, how many people knew there was a child? We know we don't know. We used for this part of the book predominantly public record. So they weren't chatting about that. You know, we don't know. Um, but there was a baby. You know, he was at that point, however many, six months old. Um, and and I think that, I mean, that really, when the newspapers came out that there was a hidden marriage and a, and a baby, I mean, oh, my gosh, you know, I think that people then began to talk about it a little bit more probably in Raleigh. <laughs> Rally on the map. Yeah, yeah. Rally on the map, totally. But uh, as I said earlier, uh, a a deputy sheriff. Uh, well, this happens right in front of the in front of the post office, but the the courthouse is right next door. Charles C. Park, the deputy sheriff, comes along and immediately t- takes uh, Ernest, if if you will, by the arm, <laughs> and uh, Ernest says, "Please, can I go over?" to my office and they do they go over to his office in the tucker building pardon me constable before we go away could i just <laughs> make what that is where <laughs> that is where he calls other attorneys all of whom wind up as part of his team of 10 uh defense attorneys the dream team during the trial well wow. he's already started he started his his defense before he's even charged with anything the newspapers pick up on this and they say the people in the street, uh, the, 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 in effect, uh, Ernest has already created his defense team while uh, poor Ludlow is still cold on the counter in Johnson's drugstore. <laughs> uh, so again, those who feel that uh, wealth and privilege and position uh, dictated the course of this case uh, would have a strong case from the beginning, though uh, not necessarily throughout the whole uh long legal procedures. And I should say, remember, that the shooting takes place on February 21st. Uh, uh, Ernest Haywood doesn't go on trial for that until October. Mm. What's happening all that time? Multiple legal hearings that uh, uh, in which the uh, defense is allowed to continue the case twice in fact over the course of that year they persuade the judge to continue the case and that's legal speak for move it down the road to the next session of court could that have happened if Ernest Haywood hadn't been Ernest Haywood that's a question that we ask the reader the sort of question that we ask the reader to decide mm. So, yeah, so I mentioned that, to Ben, I was like, hey, tell me you're rich without telling me you're rich. <laughs> yeah. like, go to jail and get people to bring your own bedding. Right. <laughs> so, well, that's exactly what happened. And, and, yeah. That. Yeah, that, that, and on page 50. Page 50. <laughs> page 50. When he does actually finally get to jail, Ernest Haywood does not spend it, spend his time downstairs with the general population. He goes upstairs where they keep women prisoners. Yeah. I am so glad you picked up on that. I, I was afraid. No, seriously. I was afraid that readers wouldn't necessarily understand that, even though we pointed out that that was a special part of the uh, relatively new jailhouse, in fact, that 
again, the question of, of privilege throughout. That becomes a big issue during the course of this trial. So um, th there is a lot of attention paid by the legal community, certainly at the time, and I suspect even now, to this case. Um, the judge himself is, is, a, is a, a controversial figure with the instructions that he gives the, the jury, the, uh, the, the, the rulings that he makes as far as the interviews of witnesses and so forth. Um, he took a lot of heat after the decision came down. I don't think we've shared that decision, and preferably we, we won't. It would be nice to leave it up to the reader. Sure. Um, but uh, but uh, he himself becomes an object of controversy. So from beginning to end, from the very beginning of the <laughs> legal process, which takes place in Ernest's own office, uh, to the end, which takes place next door to the post office in the courthouse, it's all a very local uh, event. Um, the 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 aspect of law, the aspect of privilege, the aspect of uh, wealth is ever present. And by the way, the other thing that uh, the reader will note is just how much attention this case had during the course of these multiple hearings. It didn't matter that it wasn't the trial necessarily where uh, uh, Ernest Haywood is being tried on first-degree murder. It might just be what amounts to a bail hearing. It didn't matter because the courtroom was packed. This was the entertainment of the day. This was, in effect, the legal Super Bowl, and people just crammed in there to the point where uh, uh, th there were no seats left. And did the newspapers continue, did it continue to get national attention, you know, during the trial? Well, so, yeah, it did hit the, like, uh, there was a, the author, the, the writer in the newspaper was from Charlotte, and it, it hit the wire, and it did go out. Um, you know, we could see stories about this case throughout. If we couldn't find it in the News and Observer, we could find it in some other newspaper around the country, perhaps more so every day, you know, in Raleigh, um, because the court uh, stenography reports did not give us the full story. We, it was this guy with the last name of Avery that was this amazing newspaper journalist out of Charlotte that did the day-to-day, -day, and that did hit the wire, and so people were following it. We have to remember in that time in America, true crime, just like today, was all the rage, and that sensational journalism <laughs> was something that people craved. And yes. so, I mean, that um, is definitely, it's a similarity to this era where we're all listening to true crime podcasts. I'm giving my age away, definitely, but <laughs> my, my, my demographic, but, um, but we're all listening to that, and they, and they were following along in the newspaper. This was something that was very popular to do in general. Well, in newspapers at the day, that's how people got their information, mm -hmm. you know? That, there was no CNN, There was right? no CNN. The radio hadn't even been invented, mm -hmm. the, you know, what they called the wireless once it finally got, you know, all the rage there at that yeah. point, yeah. So newspapers and, and it was fascinating you were talking about earlier about these families and they were you know the newspapers were covering their their, their yeah their it wasn't just their entertainment life. it was their social media it was, it was, was so, yeah. who who is at what party who is yeah. who is dancing with who well, and, and just like today where you know everything is very highly curated by these influencers on social on instagram and things like that i mean if we're following the and we did follow the newspaper trail looking for references to ernest haywood or gertrude tucker you know Bruce always reminds me that, you know, it'll say that Ernest was in Florida or Ernest was in Burlington. But who was the one submitting that information? 
Ernest. Mm. You know, he was mm. curating his own social media feed via the newspaper. And so, you know, we won't be able to prove <laughs> that he was at the Winder Estate in Millbrook having a dalliance because no one was submitting that to the newspaper. He was submitting he was going to Florida on a business trip. So finding their subterfuge and their dating life, um, which was not, I mean, they were two single people, um, but... But ultimately, you know, he was curating what was seen in the paper. They all were. I mean, that's how the newspaper knew about these events. People were telling these the newspapers. Sounds kind of familiar. Where do yeah. I hear that? <laughs> what I want to know is, how did you all hear about these events? Was it something that you um, had heard about for a long time? It's just part of Raleigh's history? or uh, uh, we, we do talk about that. Uh, this is something that we were aware of, what, 15, well, About 15, 15 years, years ago. And neither of us can remember how it first came to us. It came to us in pieces. And uh, we sort of told the story in pieces as we learned more about it. Uh, but um, I, uh, I, I don't think, I, I guess what it surprised me how little it appears the city these days knows about it. Um, because, and I, I say because, it was not after the after the uh, trial. This was not well covered in the in the papers. It sort of went away. Uh, I think a lot of that, I will say, was uh, can be attributed to the status of some of the people involved. Um, and we give examples of that. How it seems to pop up. Uh, in places, controversially, much later, much after the fact, as though it's a surprise. Um, but it was not something that people spoke of uh, constantly. In fact, it was a it was a, a story that I think was pr pretty well pushed aside. Uh, Robin referred to the newspapers that we went to. Yes, but it also t tells one how valuable it would be to have diaries and letters that the people who were involved produced at the time so you get the in, intimate details of what the newspapers are reporting on the surface. We, for the most part, did not. We were fortunate to have some of that, but not nearly enough to answer all the questions that to this day revolve around this story. And we do have two diaries. And, like, that's the social history that I love so much. We were given um, the babyhood journal of Eagles Haywood, the child born of this relationship. Um, but Gertrude turned that, di that baby book, Gertrude, the mother of the child, turned that baby book into her own diary. Um, and we can see that she was not very healthy, perhaps physically, perhaps mentally, after the birth of that child. We can see that she talked about what it, she said... Um, the terrible trouble had fallen on the baby's father, um, meaning the murder. She didn't know about the killing until May um, because I think she was in some sort of sanitarium. So that did give us some insight into her post-baby life um, and a little bit about the baby, although she had horrible handwriting. And so it was very difficult. <laughs> it took many people reading this diary to try to figure out how she crossed her T's. I mean, it was awful. Um, and then we had Eagle's diary himself, but again, that's all, I mean, except for, except for the few vague references to the birth of Eagles, obviously it was his baby book. Um, you know, we didn't have, there was no Ernest, er, Ernest Haywood papers at UNC Chapel Hill or given by Ernest Haywood. They, 
uh, they were heavily curated. They're not at all about Ernest Haywood. <laughs> They're about his family, you know. Yeah. Um, and so there were there were no diaries um, from them, no records from um, Ludlow's family like that, you know. So we we are missing, you know, like. The, the question, I think, for a lot of people is, what was said on Fayetteville Street that morning that was so bad that caused Ernest Haywood to just say, enough, and shoot Ludlow? So, so well, I was going to, can I ask a question Go first? for it, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, you know, a lot, there's some implications that it might have been a heat of a conversation is what mm-hmm. you were just saying. Mm-hmm. How common was it for people to be armed at that time? I think or Raleigh would it have been? was the Wild West. Okay. I think, I mean, Ernest had just gotten his gun repaired so um because he was going to florida <laughs> so i mean just a few days before right he had just gotten his gun fixed um and ludlow it was well known i think that ludlow carried a gun okay. um and so i mean i think it, it wasn't like premeditated we're like all right i'm gonna have my yeah, gun I mean, with me yeah, today. i think they both were probably gun carriers oh, we, so, uh, we uh just in, in light of that uh, and we i i suppose that's something <clears throat> excuse me we should have paid more attention to but uh, in looking at another case that had nothing to do with this, uh, it was a shooting that took place in the Raleigh Railroad Station down on Nash Square. Uh, one of the perps ran out and was apprehended by a citizen who happened to be walking down the sidewalk who pulled out his own sidearm. So you <laughs> ask... Gomer Powell would say, citizens <laughs> arrest, citizens <laughs> arrest. So you ask, were, 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 uh, were guns common? Yes, and in fact, that was important to this case, as you might imagine, without going into all the, the gory details, that in fact both men were armed that day. And they might have been armed every day. For all we know, we don't have enough private information to be able to answer a question like that. So I do want to get to that point about motive. Do, y'all, you know, do we know what you know you 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 said there may have been an an argument or a conversation between Ludlow and Ernest on that day and something triggered Ernest yeah something triggered Ernest you know and and in all fairness Ludlow's mother had died what two days before Ludlow's mother was a very wealthy woman and with money in Raleigh and in New York and Ernest was handling her money here in Raleigh um the you know the legal aspect of that and so perhaps, um, you know, I always think that Ludlow went that day to see Ernest to say, okay, enough's enough, all this dilly-dallying, all this, you know, dalliances with my sister-in-law, I'm taking the money, the account away from you from my mother's estate. Um, and I think that would have gotten Ernest pretty heated. But Just to go back to the book and take a line out, which sure. again, I think summarizes it, um, this is on page 61. <laughs> page 61, man. 61. This is what, in effect, uh, th- these families were faced, just in one sentence. This left, at this point, this left Ernest Haywood allegedly in the midst of a tawdry scandal involving Ludlow's sister-in-law representing the financial interests of the young man's now-deceased mother which I think is a good summary of the, the situation that Ludlow found himself in and why he well may have confronted Ernest, though we can't call it a confrontation, in front of the post office because this man who's involved, <laughs> allegedly involved with his uh, uh, sister-in-law is the very man who's handling his mother's estate. So... You can see how the two might have clashed, uh, 
and if only, that's one conversation I wish we had a record of. And it may be somewhere. If you're listening. To to digress for just a minute, wouldn't it be nice if this book smoked out information that's been in people's attics for years and perhaps proved us wrong? Or if not proved us wrong, at least raised, uh, at least suggested answers to some of the questions that are raised by this story, no matter who wrote, some, no matter who yeah. wrote them. Some puzzle pieces. I mean, there are some, that's I think the, the most, most common thing we're asked. Like we did a book talk at, at Whitaker Glen two weeks ago. And the woman that um, had the, uh, arranged the book talk called and said, you just have got to tell me, what did they say on Fayetteville Street to each I don't know. I mean, we don't know what they said on Fayetteville Street to each other. But, I mean, it wasn't just, he didn't just walk up and shoot them. You know, they had to have some conversation. I think Ernest was pushed to the ground by Ludlow, a younger man. And then from the ground, um, Ernest shot Ludlow Skinner. So there, I mean, there was a bit of a scuffle out there on Fayetteville Street. Um and I think it's interesting that all these people supposedly witnessed it, but not one person heard what they said. I mean, isn't that interesting? That, <laughs> well, they may have, but were they ever asked? That's very true. Or were they going to tell it no matter what? Exactly. I mean, you would think yeah. among the 200 witnesses. 200 witnesses? Oh, no. The, trial, the judge pointed out at the very end of this trial, he said, you have heard... 200 witnesses. So they pulled they brought in 200 witnesses for this trial. Yeah, but it wasn't just it, it from the the hotel window. I mean, all kinds of people. In fairness though, a lot of it was character witnesses. Yes. Oh, okay. They had Governor uh, Acock that would actually showed up as a, as a character You're witness. You're kidding. No. Well, <laughs> that's what the newspapers say. Yeah. <laughs> a so, character witness uh, for, for another witness. Oh, for another witness. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So so they were vouched. They had all these witnesses coming in to vouch for other witnesses. Yes. Yes. I, mean, it's, like, I know Mr. Briggs is an honest man. Right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, bought, I bought the hammer and nails at his hardwood shop and the, at a fair price. And they themselves become an object of discussion by some of the attorneys. You'll see how they go after these witnesses. Uh, so pe- literally all these people are being <laughs> drugged drug into yeah. this, dragged into yeah. this. <laughs> and meanwhile, you have a witness lying in a cot one day, because you know, there were no... Um, juror. There, the juror, sorry. You have a juror lying on a cot one day, because there were no alternate jurors, and they were like, they were determined to get through this case and so the juror got sick and so they brought in a cot and he laid there from <laughs> yeah, the cot the and listened from his cot because yes. if he hadn't if he'd had to be excused from the jury leaving with just 11 men mistrial, mistrial. mistrial. so they brought because there were it was i can't remember what year they started alternate jurors but it was 1931, not 1931 i believe and so you know there was no alternate juror system and so this man on a cot he said he'd be okay he just listened from his cot <laughs> i mean it's insane raleigh in a courtroom in 1903 is something I, that we've never I, 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 now I, this needs to be a movie i know right <laughs> It's have so you good. have you gotten calls from Hollywood? Are you going to option yet. it again? If you're Not listening, <laughs> that's right. That's why we come to a radio station. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can totally understand why the North Carolina Bar Association is interested in this trial and why they still are talking about it mm-hmm. because a lot of this. I can see there are a lot of legal ethics stuff, illegal courtroom procedure things mm-hmm. coming out. 
I mean, this is just, this is, this is nuts. It is nuts. It is absolutely nuts. I mean, and, well, you know, and I think you also think about the fact that the original judge had to recuse himself because he was Gertrude and Octavia's uncle. Whoa. Um, and, and when they called the, um, they had a little boy pulling out the um, names for the um, juror, right? And, and Ernest's own brother was called and ha- obviously couldn't be a juror, sure. you know? So, I mean... It's. It was all very. Um, it must have. No wonder people were fighting to get into this courtroom. It was definitely dramatic, and I think a lot of people just wanted to see that. And, and did a lot of this stem because of a lot of these these weird, what we see as weird courtroom procedures and everything? Did that just stem from the fact that Raleigh was a small town back then? No, I think it stemmed from the. I think it stemmed from legal procedure. It oh, had it nothing just... to do with the size, other than the uh, attraction that it held for people in town. And the jury, the judge, uh, and the, you know. Knowing, I mean, these were known people, known characters. Uh, people knew the witnesses. People knew the uh, perpetrators, the victim. They knew the victim well. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that accounts for it, uh, not, 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 not so much the size of the city. Yeah. I think it was in these days, as we've already mentioned, a, a sort of a national phenomenon. True crime was the thing. Yeah. We, we do take a little sidebar on the, h- how um, the newspapers handled this case. And f- f- the benefit for us as historians uh, is apparently, according to archives, they did not keep the records, the word-for-word testimony uh, that stenographers took down in the courtroom. They didn't keep that. They don't have that in archives, which surprised me. Wow. However, so in, so interested was the public in cases like this, including this one, that newsmen the j- journalists were careful to write down to re- in effect serve as stenographers mm-hmm. and do leave us as historians this wonderful record of what was said uh, at the trial that Including is the actual testimony of the people they would try and write that down and that is what appeared in the newspaper yeah word for word now, and including lighthearted moments i mean and there were lighthearted moments in this very um, stressful case. I mean, there were moments where everyone would laugh and um, just like, I guess. Not many. But some. And so, I mean, I, but everything's documented, even those light, those few lighthearted That's moments. absolutely right. So we thank journalists of the day for mm-hmm. doing what, uh, what historians need done. Well, I mean, that just pre- you know, supports the maxim that newspapers are the first draft of history. Exactly. They certainly are in a case like this. Now, yeah. it, of course, that may be changing now, but, uh, sure. but it certainly was true. Uh, well put. certainly was true in these days. I may quote you on that later, Ben. That's, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what I learned in my journalism classes. <laughs> You're tuned in to Little Raleigh Radio, streaming online at littleraleighradio.org. This is Lawn Darts Radio, and we're going to take a top-of-the-hour break right now. This is Complete Mountain Almanac. A, uh, they just released an album uh, about environmental justice that they broke down uh, for the months of the year. Ooh. And we're going to listen to the track. February, right here on Little Rally Radio. (laughs) 
You're tuned into Little Raleigh Radio. Uh, this is Lawn Darts Radio, and that is H.C. McIntyre with Rose of Clover. We are joined in the studio by Robin Simonton and Bruce Miller. And Bruce Miller just dropped a major bombshell a on major, me. A major big bomb, uh, bomb on us. Uh, as you know, H.C. McIntyre. Uh, Longtime collaborator with is Jinx Miller. Jinx Miller. And guess who's sitting in <laughs> this thing? Jinx Miller's dad, Bruce G. Miller. And both of us were just like, whoa. <laughs> just like, kaboom. They do have the same last name. <laughs> <laughs> what a small world. How about it? Well, and, and uh, not only dad, but a veteran of many Mount Mariah concerts. I'm sorry they're not uh, not together anymore. Because yeah, that was a wonderful, many a, many wonderful band. Yeah. 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 Wonderful band. Yeah, absolutely. I was telling one of their early appearances at uh, Cat's Cradle, uh, the the band went on and on, and the crowd was just jammed in there, as they always were. They stopped their sets, and the crowd wanted more, more, encore, encore, and they didn't come out. I went backstage. I said, Jinx, don't ever do this again. When they want an encore, you come out and give an encore. He said, he said, we ran through all our songs. <laughs> 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 we ain't got nothing else to play. And I'm thinking, that doesn't matter. You go out and play something you've already played, but they loved you and they want to hear more. And or you uh, just go and do a cover of, I don't know, John Jacob Jinkelheimer well, Schmidt. They, <laughs> and I, I do love it, it when you when an encore replace their songs. It's like, you know, it's a real encore where they have nothing prepared. <laughs> and so they're just like, all right, we got to do it again. That's right. <laughs> but no, they open for the Indigo Girls often and... Uh, uh, I remember a, a particularly a concert of Indigo Girls in Mount Mariah at the, in San Diego, that outdoor, th- Humphrey, I think it's Humphrey's Outdoor Theater at San wow. Diego. How wonderful that was out there. And many fond memories. I, I'm i sorry they're not uh, together anymore. Yeah, yeah. Set us up for the reunion one day. Exactly. <laughs> but that was a great moment when it hit the two of you. And that was, this is Jenks Miller's dad. <laughs> Well, he'll be very modest about that, <laughs> but I will tell him. Thank you. Please do. <laughs> I have all their albums. I have them on, on vinyl. Yeah. Oh, I, wonderful. Y- yes. 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 I've got their 2010 EP somewhere on the upper shelves. Yes. Oh, uh, well, Do you play them on your, between your... We do. They're in, the, uh, they're in our music catalog, so they're, they're on, you know, random repeat rotation... Um, I think Lament is one that we play. We play that fairly one quite a frequently. Lot. Uh, Wedding that, gowns, yes. another one that we play a lot. Yeah. Uh, so and they they definitely have had a a huge impact on my my taste in music. Same well, here. Thank you. Thank Same you very here. much. I, I, I he will he will. <laughs> I think Jinx is one of the first people I ever followed on Twitter when oh, wow, when I joined goodness. that platform. I was like, oh, wait, who do I know that I or who do I like that. I actually care what their opinions on these are. <laughs> he will enjoy hearing that. But be very modest and uh, and disclaim it. So well, thank, that's thank okay. you, though. I'll pass that on. Sure. So as <laughs> we're you, <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> So, 
that, that's not the reason why. It was just a happy little <laughs> yeah. tangent that we found. A happy little accident on what a small world. But we're here with uh, Bruce and Robin talking about their new book, Life and Death in High Places. If you don't know, Bruce Miller is the historian of Historic Oakwood Cemetery. Robin Simonton is the executive director of uh, Historic Oakwood. And we've been talking about this fascinating story of uh, a murder scandal and all this and we want to talk about the aftermath and 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 all this but before we get to that i'm really interested in the in the the relationship between ernest haywood and and gertrude tucker mm-hmm. is that correct mm-hmm. she went by gertrude haywood eventually but yes yeah, so we believe um they they would we know that they were introduced to each other because Ernest Haywood was also the um, a, a state attorney for the Tuckers, for her father-in-law. And then in 1899, Gertrude's husband dies of tuberculosis, and he becomes the um, a state attorney for that, um, for this, for the estate of her husband. So she's working closely with him at that time. Um, again, they were both. You know, she was a widow; he was a single person. Um, but I do think, and this, I'll let Bruce address this. Um, one of the biggest mysteries uh, we always think if we could answer uh, one of these other questions besides what did Ludlow and Ernest say to each other on Fayetteville Street is a question about Gertrude and I'll let you explain that Uh, after William after her husband's death excuse me she takes the three children that she had by uh, by her husband on a trip to to Europe Uh, allegedly for three years. She's going to spend three years abroad. I think Germany was the main target of that. She was never explicit in the information we have. Uh, She goes to Europe. Now, understand that her husband has died and Ernest is handling the estate while she's abroad. Um, She comes back not in three years. She comes back in a year. And it's within the months following that that... It appears she and Ernest became much more than a uh, lawyer-client, uh, more, much more than a lawyer-client relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, what the the other piece of information that I want to know to help solve this great mystery that overhangs this story, besides what happened between Ludlow and Ernest in front of the post office, is why did Gertrude come back? after a year instead of staying over there. I, I can't help but think that she was, had to have been in constant contact, as much as you can be in, uh, in 1903, uh, in constant contact with her attorney in Raleigh. And what exactly did that contact entail? Were there hints made by Ernest or by Gertrude that said, you know, there's more here than simply lawyer-client relationship? I'm, I can't help but think that somewhere, if you're listening out there, <laughs> <laughs> that there must have been letters exchanged. There had to have been letters exchanged between the two, if only his keeping her up to date with the handling of the estate. Mm-hmm. It was a substantial estate that her husband left behind. Um, and, uh, and I would simply like to know, because that would answer the question, or help answer the question, just what was, what's well, your question, just what was the relationship, the true relationship? We know what the gossip said. What was the true relationship between um, 
Ernest and Gertrude. Uh, if we knew that, is that, is that why she came back early from Germany? Uh, that would help us a great deal. And it may actually lead us to the other thing that we want to know and that, you know, that you've asked about, and that is what was said between the two in front of the post office on that fateful day. Um, again, these things are not, <laughs> we depend on the newspapers a lot. These are not newspaper uh, these are not answerable in a newspaper. Well, you know, and the good thing is Gertrude, obviously we had that baby book, but then in 1928-ish, 1930, she released a book called Whir of Wings, W-H-I-R of Wings. And this book was predominantly letters from Eagles, her son, to her. Um, never the other way around. Um, and it kind of led us, that, when we found that book early on, I mean, like in the past decade, right? And, um, and, you know, you read this book and you're like, what are they talking about? You know, she's you could see that their relationship um, and she and that's where she explains about eagles um, being born in um, in Halifax. And she explains um, why, you know, this being Halifax, Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia yeah, right. North Carolina. Yeah. Very good. Name for the same people. Yeah. <laughs> but so, I mean, so this book kind of gives but the book never relate, never explains her relationship with Ernest either. Um, to, other than the fact that he was present at the birth of the child, that he said the baby looked like Beethoven um, when she was when he was born. <laughs> it looked like Beethoven. Yeah, we, right? We've never understood no. that either, but that's what she said. That's what she said. I think it's a you're having your attorney at the, there at the birth of your child. There's no other yeah. relations. Is yeah. a little, a little strange. Yes. Now he never <laughs> says yeah, he was, was it, there. It was probably the hair. I, 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 the that's the only thing we could figure. Yeah, it's I mean we hair don't. Know. He's scrunched up old face. I don't know. I mean I don't know. It's all very odd. Um, but so, I mean, so that gave us some clues, but she never really, other than calling herself Mrs. Ernest Haywood for the rest of her life, I mean, she, and when we talked to family members of hers, you know, they didn't know anything else either, you know. So she, she called herself Mrs. Ernest Haywood. For the did, rest of her life. For the, for the rest, rest of her, of her life. life. But did Ernest ever claim her? No, not that we know of. Really? No. I mean, he and as you said earlier, <laughs> when asked if they were married, he said there was no ceremony. There was no ceremony. Well, that was his attorney. His attorney saying that. Well, one of his ten. Yeah, one of his ten. <laughs> one of his ten. I think Ernest, Ernest was a, considered, I think, the smartest, one of the smartest attorneys. In, in fact, an article came out when he and Gertrude were apparently seeing each other that highlighted him and just how, uh, what a skillful attorney he was uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, but uh, where, where was I going? I, I lost my own train of thought. <laughs> there, if you, without without spoiling the ending, um, so you've got you've got basically the the big mysteries are what was said on the steps, mm -hmm. um, and um, why you know, she what came was why she came back. Yeah, you know um, why Gertrude came back from Germany or Europe. Yeah, um, after a year instead of three years. But uh, what was what was so contentious at the actual trial? What was, you know, if there were all these witnesses that someone was shot, how do you then say, well, did he just did Ernest say I didn't do it, or I don't know how much we want to get into the 
the trial, but um, also because it's very complicated. <laughs> it, it, it is. Well, because you have two hundred, uh, we had to pick and choose among the various witnesses, the many witnesses. That but were there were people running around saying that he didn't no, shoot him? It was him, never was an that, issue. Uh, of, that, it, was, no, yeah. it was always an issue of him shooting him. That was never in debate. And so, right. So the the defense the defense never contended never contended that. The question was what what propelled the shooting. Yeah. Um, but they never discussed motive. They never discussed motive. I think, uh, I, 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 we think, I should say, that the attorneys realized, for various reasons that we explain, uh, probably more complicated than we might get into right here, but that it didn't benefit either side to talk about a relationship between Gertrude and, and Ernest. So, Remember, it would have meant that Ernest abandoned his child if they'd covered that, and that wouldn't that wouldn't look good for him. Uh, they didn't want it to look like uh, Ludlow, who was packing heat, uh, might have been going after Ernest from the other side. So it benefited neither side to, uh, to go into the p possible relationship. Not only that, these were close-knit families, and it would have been a... Imagine discussing that aspect of this case in public, day after day, yeah. I think would have been... So I think that the attorneys probably met at some point before the trial and agreed that it wouldn't be spoken of. However, we do give some uh, incidents during the trial when, in fact, it sounds like they were... The, the, the agreement was breached just a bit. In fact, the judge apparently took them to task at one point over that. So this did, uh, did Gertrude ever express any frustration that it wasn't brought up? Not that we know of. Not public. So it, it essentially was a show trial. Could you could that I mean, do you think okay, that's right, correct? I think that it might have been the the there might have been a fairness of these are the legal points that we want to get to the conclusion of. Right. And that's mm -hmm. where we're gonna try to be as black and white as possible mm -hmm. for what the legal arguments mm -hmm. are that we are here to discuss. But we have a a public understanding that we're keeping people's laundry out of it it's just just stick yeah. to the facts just stick so to i the don't facts. think that the, uh, okay. a show trial a lot of times to me if i'm hearing about a show trial means that the conclusion is already known is already and known the yeah. conclusion here was not known so okay. there was something that they felt like a jury had to decide yeah, i mean they couldn't just yeah i mean it, it's it's it is complicated but yeah i mean i do think that ultimately it was just sticking to the facts um, of whether it was a, a first or second degree murder trial, he was charged with a capital crime, um, and all of that. I mean, because he did kill somebody. I mean, yes, you can't just walk up to somebody on Fayetteville Street could and well kill them. Well, have been hung. Yeah. If if, he, if he'd been found guilty of first degree murder. Uh, but to, to uh, I think to go into it in in the detail that's covered in the book would be more than. Yeah. It's very difficult. We've got more, than you, uh, yeah. more than you want. Forty minutes yeah. left. Yeah. More than you want. <laughs> more than you want to do here. So. Yeah. Good point. We can do as much or as little of it as you want. Yeah. If you want to go. There are various aspects of it, and I will say, uh, perhaps to tease a potential reader, that uh, the 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 one thing that really swayed the jurist's mind uh, was a clever a clever uh, a ploy uh, by the defense. Uh, and, and I think the, the readers would enjoy uh, 
enjoy reading about that. If but folks want to read about it, um, you mentioned earlier that Quell Ridge was able to ship out some books, so I assume mm -hmm. that's a place people can pick up the book. Yep, you can also uh, purchase it on our website at historicoakwoodcemetery.org um, or in the, um, in the cemetery office as well. Uh, and with the cemetery, um, they can also kind of have an entire experience of digging deeper. Uh, no, no pun oh, intended. You're clever. <laughs> <laughs> well played, Jacob. <laughs> well played. Found, found, found. But uh, but there's some tours that have been put together. Yeah, so um, you can purchase at the cemetery. You can either purchase just the book, or you can purchase the book in a little goodie packet. And the packet includes the um, Life and Death in High Places cemetery map, which highlights the graves of 43 of the folks in the in the story that are buried at Oakwood Cemetery. With that there are more, but that's just the, we narrowed it down to 43. You <laughs> narrowed it down! There were 200 witnesses, exactly. and now they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all out in Oakwood. Yeah, oh, almost all. Um, so, yeah, so there's that. You also, can, you also get buttons that have... Um, John Ludlow Skinner's image and the x-ray from the back of the book um, and or, or in a button that says the importance of being earnest. So you get a little goodie packet. Uh, it also has the importance of being earnest has him very menacingly almost in like a Victorian coat. Yes. Pointing his gun. pistol out <laughs> with the gun. Yes. Very true. Um, and it also has um, a walking tour map of um, the neighborhood, historic Oakwood neighborhood, because Octavia, the winders all lived in Oakwood. Um, and John Ludlow Skinner and Octavia lived in Oakwood um, on Person Street. Um, and it has a little postcard from the museum in Pennsylvania that helped us so much with the research. Um, and so it, um, it's a little goodie packet so that you can learn more about the, um, the people um, that are involved in the book. So, yeah, so the, and then we do have um, a trolley tour, which is sold out, our first trolley tour in partnership with the Mordecai Historic Park. Um, they have um, are kindly provided us with the trolley um, in February um, of stopping. You know, the trolley doesn't fit in the cemetery gates because um, our gates are not wide enough for that. Um, but um, the trolley will go out and see the life and death in high places, the folks um, where they live or lived, you know, where their houses were, um, if they're still standing or not. Um, and I, the trolley will go down Fayetteville Street and show the place of the um, killing, um, as well as the churches these folks worshipped at and, um, and other places. And the courthouse where they were locked and up. The, <laughs> the courthouse where they were locked up. And yep. Yeah. All that. So we're very excited about that. We call it Oakwood on Wheels. Um, the cemetery is <laughs> going out and leaving the grounds um, for a, a couple hours in February. Um, and then we have some, uh, we have a virtual, no, no, we have an in-person book talk for the Wake County Historical Society, free and open to the public. Um, I think they're asking for registrations, though, at the Mordecai House on Monday, March 6th at 7 p.m. Um, and... Um, a virtual book talk for the Wake County Public Library on Monday, March 20th, um, I think also at 7 p.m. So we're excited about those as well. Mm -hmm. We'll recap those later. That was uh, the Wake County Library, though, was March 20th? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Putting in my notes. Thanks. <laughs> you had said something, Bruce, interesting that aspects of the story, this story keeps popping up and has been keep popping up since it happened, since the trial, since the thing, and that, you know, people discover it or rediscover it or whatnot. Why is it important for for us to know about this story when it comes to Raleigh history? Because we have so many new people moving here all the time. 
you know, why is it important to know this? That's a good question. Um, it's important to us, obviously. We're, we're close to it. and Well, you, the map of the cemetery suggests it's important to Robin and to me. To the general public, um, I think it's a wonderful insight into Raleigh at the turn of the last century. Um, and we try very hard to set that scene and that tone right from the outset of the book. We take you back. Um, in fact, we treat you, dear reader, as a, as a spectator to all of this. And if you're interested at all in history, um, I think this would be a wonderful story about early Raleigh. It involves so many people in town. That is, if you're interested in the history of Raleigh mm. and you want to know about the Roysters, for instance, uh, a renowned family in the history of Raleigh, as well as at Oakwood Cemetery, this book covers it. Um, Beyond that, of course, as we mentioned already, the, 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 uh, the case has a remarkable uh, legal history. Uh, as I said, the, the incident happens in February, and Ernest doesn't really go on trial, as we normally think of the word, on trial until uh, the fall, until October. In the meantime, there is hearing after hearing after hearing. And one thing, if you're like us at all, you learn a lot of law. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had to look up a lot of law. We had yeah. to <laughs> yes. Uh, that, uh, uh, um, I think we should hang out our shingle, as yeah. they say. <laughs> but um, it certainly, I think, has would have uh, an interest to people in terms of how the trial proceeded. Um course we can't cover all 200 witnesses but we tried to pick out the ones that were particularly interesting and as I say I think any reader would be particularly interested in the strategies uh, particularly that the defense that the defense used um, quite a surprise you'll be surprised mm. um, so it, it has an intrinsic value just in terms of history but a particular one in terms of law it is clearly up there near the top of uh, uh, trials that have taken place in Raleigh uh, over the years. I mean, you can read online the um, closing arguments for the defense, mm -hmm. um, uh, and you can actually purchase the closing arguments. I, I have a copy on from Amazon. Yes, out in a booklet, published yeah. form, <laughs> uh, wow. as at least one of the attorney's closing arguments. Yeah. Yes, the book is available. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So Wow. Again, the, the law doesn't necessarily interest everybody, mm -hmm. but you don't have to be a lawyer or uh, uh, deeply interested in, in legal uh, aspects to appreciate what's happening. Because yeah. the story is, well, you know, Bruce has always from the very beginning been, in, been interested in the legal aspect. I mean, it is fascinating. But it, for all these new folks that live in Raleigh now that may drive down Tucker Street and not know who the Tuckers were, or um, may see um, St. Savior's, the Ernest, uh, the Edgar Haywood Memorial Chapel, and not know who Edgar Haywood was, Ernest's brother. You know, they're all, you know, all these new folks may not have the um, understanding of what Raleigh was and who these people were. Mm. And, um, and while this killing on Fayetteville Street was kind of a blip for these very highly placed families, um, it, it is an interesting moment in Raleigh history um, with lasting side effects. Um, and uh, 
I mean, now I have a whole new appreciation. My, my parents read this book out loud to each other every day at lunch. They would read a chapter every day. And, um, and then they drove down, and they'll be on the trolley tour too, but they drove, <laughs> they drove down Fayetteville Street the other day just to see the post office, just to see. I mean, they've lived in this area for, I don't know, 13 years. Yeah, and I mean, there's parts of the story that touch Dix Park, Fulton yeah. Park. Yes. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's so it's so it, it does. I mean, my parents have a whole new appreciation for this city, you know, and they and so learning these little facts that they still talk about, you know. So it's it's been kind of fun to see folks learn about Raleigh through this book. When I moved back to Raleigh about eleven years ago, I attended to NC State, but I mean, I really when I was in school, I never really got out into the city. So when I moved back to Raleigh, uh, I you know I really tried to dig into the city, and I I I wrote a a, a piece for the Raleigh Public Record about the history of the Mordecai neighborhood mm -hmm. and how, you know, just, I was just fast, I was just interested that, uh, that, you know, driving up Wake Forest Road and you see these signs that say Mordecai, but it, it's Mordecai, you mean, the original, the original pronunciation is Mordecai. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're not from Raleigh, you don't, you don't realize that the pronunciation changed yep. because it's named after Henry Mordecai who was a Jewish man and prominent lawyer from Warrington who married into the Joel Lane family and was a prominent lawyer, a state lawmaker. And in order to fit in, you know, at that time in the 1800s, to sound less Jewish, he changed the pronunciation of his name. Yeah. And that's where the name of the neighborhood comes from. And so you can always tell who's a... Who's a newcomer and who's old school yep. Raleigh by how they pronounce? Are you exactly. a Mordecai or a Mordecai? Mordecai. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. very true, and and I'm sure it's happened with Rob, and I know it has with me on tours of the cemetery. I've had people argue with me. Yep. Oh, serious? <laughs> argue with me about how it's pronounced, and uh, you know, you simply have to explain kindly that this is the story is, yeah. as as you probably know, and yeah. I, I've never seen it confirmed that the story is that Moses Mordecai, the patriarch of the family, wrote a drew a little key on some of the letters that he wrote under his name as a hint to whoever was happened to be reading the letter that this was how this was to be pronounced. Uh, now, that's what's said by some. I've never seen the letter, but a, a letter like that. But uh, uh, it, it, it does emphasize just how the family prefers to have or preferred to preferred. have their, fa their name pronounced. Well, in yeah. the Mordecai Historic Park um, shop, uh, there's a shirt that has the different pronunciations, and it corrects the Raleigh oh, pronunciation. Yeah, so I was serious. Just, yeah, I was just oh, in there a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, "Now that's a great shirt." That's fantastic. <laughs> so. uh, Oakwood, of course, is a beautiful cemetery. Um, we were trying to figure out the other day if the the tree there's a big oak tree, like kind of when you first go into the right. Mm -hmm. Is that the Shimmerwall tree? I mean, the, the Shimmerwall tree is gone, but it was from Oakwood Cemetery. It was in the spring the spring section of the cemetery. Uh, in the 2011 tornadoes, um, we lost that tree. Oh. Um, but so that is the um, the oak tree that is on the Shimmerwall. And we did plant another tree there, another oak. Um, but it's obviously, well, we won't see it in our lifetime look to the way it did on the Shimmerwall. But yeah, whenever somebody says, oh, the Shimmerwall tree is in Nash Square or whatever, you're like, no, it's not. It was Oakwood Cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we're very, we have, and um, the designer, is that Jed Gant that designed the Shimmerwall? I can't remember who designed the Shimmerwall. No, it's a Thomas um, Sayre. Oh, was that the Thomas, was that Thomas Sayre? Yeah. Um, but so, um, 
somebody made for us in the past, I don't know, eight years or so. It hangs on our office wall, the, um, the, dr- the drawing of the shimmer wall, like as designed a photo of the shimmer wall in our tree. Um, and that hangs on our office. We're oh, very wow. proud that the shimmer wall that everyone sees in Raleigh is, is an Oakwood Cemetery tree. But if we wanted to go down there and not just do our own self-guided tour, mm-hmm. but actually one of these tours, um, like uh, Bruce Lee's, um, how, how do folks sign up for the tours? Well, they need to stay tuned to our social media for um, other additional tours and on our website, on our calendar. Um, we're trying to propagate as much as possible while not dragging him out in cold weather. <laughs> <laughs> the trolley appealed to us because it was heated and warm <laughs> in February. <laughs> so. so are you all going to be on the trolley while it yeah, does Bruce the Bruce will be leading the um, trolley tour, um, stopping um, at all the different um, points um, in partnership with Mordecai. So we're very excited. Fantastic. And get some cocoa and learn about the history of rock. <laughs> history now, don't give rock. folks ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I, think th- I think we had to sign an agreement saying no food or drink. In the uh, <laughs> look at Jacob getting them in trouble. I know, geez Louise. Bad it's our new partnership. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Well, we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, a yeah. little bit more about uh, stuff that's happening at Oakwood. But first, let's get to our weekly segment: news in space. News in space. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's our weekly look at happenings of the heavens, sponsored by my NASA logo hat. It's the Worm logo, the finest piece of marketing design in all of human spaceflight. And uh, let's see, big news for everyone that's following the Artemis mission. Uh, as you know, NASA uh, NASA's what the mega moon rocket, the SLS rocket, uh, launched uh, in uh, November and uh, sent the Orion spacecraft unmanned around the moon. It took them about twenty some odd days and sent and came back. And NASA is uh, took a look at all the data and looks like that the uh, SLS and the Orion capsule uh, passed with flying colors and they're good to go for their next mission, which is Artemis II, which will carry a, a crew to the moon. And this is, this is a big step because there were, you know, that uh, the SLS rocket, the launch was scrubbed several times because of everything, some hydrogen leaks and other issues. There was a hurricane as well that, 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 that hit uh, Florida. Uh, but uh, they said, uh, uh, NASA said it went mostly, uh, went off mostly without a hitch. And that is a big step forward for, for NASA and, and getting not only uh, humans back on the moon, but the first woman on the moon. Well, just to piggyback that off a little bit, um, yeah. one of the biggest detriments for astronauts on space journeys, they speculate, um, is the amount of isolation and loneliness that they're going to experience. It already happens a lot on the International Space Station. Um, and so NASA has reached out to Texas A&M to figure out a new technology, uh, innovative ways to combat that. And Texas A&M is working on full sensory immersion virtual reality experiments. So the astronauts can wear VR ex- equipment and have sensations that um, they wouldn't be able to normally do in a space mission Uh, to test them. They're having like the people um, tasting rose petals and things that they normally wouldn't already have a associated flavor with and seeing if folks in any other room then can have those same sensory inputs. Uh, And so far it's, it's looking very, very promising. 
Um, it's mostly focused on not just sight VR, but um, smells and taste. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So they can get a little taste of Earth while they're up in orbit. Yep. And the, the, the hope is that it will make the the Mars missions more bearable. Yeah. And speaking of Mars missions. Speaking of Mars missions, <clears throat> NASA and the Defense Advanced Research De- Projects Agency, otherwise known as DARPA, there, NASA and DARPA are are partnering up to work on a nuclear thermal propulsion uh, engine. It's a technology that offers more efficient propulsion than conventional uh, chemical rock, uh, rockets. Uh, and the idea is is to create this nuclear propulsion rocket, and and if it works, it would get astronauts. Uh, if we're going to do a mission to Mars, it would get astronauts there faster. And so instead of like in months, it could get us there in 45 days. Uh, You know, the goal and uh, let's see, Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA, says uh, uh, goal is to launch and demonstrate a successful nuclear thermal engine as soon as 2027. So all kinds of fun stuff that, that that's going on. And obviously DARPA, if DARPA's involved, then things, you know, this could be really, really cool. Of course, they're always involved with a lot of stuff, especially I know you conspiracy theorists out there love love DARPA. So anyway, <laughs> what else you got, Jacob? Well, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to see Comet C yet. Uh, you mentioned earlier this is going to be a good week yes. uh, to see it. Um, it's going to be closest to Earth, uh, I think, uh, February 1st or 2nd. Yeah, I was lucky enough to see it on Friday night um, with binoculars. I couldn't see it with my own eyes just because of... A, it's in space far away, and B, uh, there is still a significant amount of light pollution, but we had one of the clearest winter night skies in Raleigh that um, I can us ever remember having on Friday night. I was able to see it with binoculars, uh, which was very, very exciting. Uh, the place to look is in between the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper uh, towards the Hercules constellation. Uh, so in the, nor- it, in the it, northern sky. In the northern sky, looking towards Garner. Okay, um, that's that's kind of where you want to position yourself. <laughs> um, but that's um, south then. Uh, if Garner, if you're looking south, if you're, you're looking, looking you're supposed to be looking east. So, so that that's probably my, my mistake about Garner. Okay, so okay. so if, we're, if you're in West Raleigh, you want to look southeast. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, well, carry to your back. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but um um and. Uh, uh, so astronomers have been uh, using a lot of telescopes uh, to look in that region to to look at the comet and to see what uh, lies beyond that. Um, and you might notice when you're looking up there that you see stars kind of arranged in a tail formation. And um, uh, NASA made pretty major milestones using uh, the France-Hawaii Subaru telescope uh, this week um, to prove that the when you see stars clustered together like tails that it's the impact um between when galaxies orbit into each other oh um those star those galaxies the stars get attracted to each other's gravity and that's how they get close together and make what we see as as tails as out tails. there in the, in the in the heavens so so, so they, that's what makes the tails in a galaxy yes ah. is where the two galaxies smushed, smushed into each other together. and then some of them are like, well, I don't want to go. I want to stay, hang out here now. <laughs> so if you're if you're looking up and you're seeing the, you know, that whole area, you're seeing the M1 galaxy, and that that's the uh, closest place to see a tail. We've also so we all know about uh, JBWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, yeah. and they, it found its first exoplanet. 
but everyone remember just remember Hubble the still Hubble Hubble state, Space Telescope is still up there still sending back pictures and it found it captured a stunning image of uh, what is known as the Sol Nebula and it was glowing red uh, so if you go online take a pictures it's a gorgeous gorgeous picture. Uh, let's put a see. Dr. Reynolds over at NC State. We call space porn. Space, space porn. <laughs> whatever, whatever. This colors. He's like that's just space porn. <laughs> uh, why is it red? Uh, so they say the red light is caused by an H alpha emission, which uh, happens when very energetic electrons within hydrogen atoms lose energy, causing the release of this distinctive. Red light. This that's according to representatives. So, so it's not a Doppler shift. So that's, it's not no. Cool. It's it it's uh it's all about hydrogen and electrons. And that's what the uh, Hubble, Hubble researchers say. Uh, you know, and it also has uh, the red light also reveals a, a range of fascinating features, such as a so-called free-floating, evaporating, gaseous globule. <laughs> it's seen as a dark tadpole-shaped region. Uh, if you look at the image, it's the upper center left of the image, and I'll show you all here in the studio. Ooh, Ooh nice. Oh, my <laughs> Right? Right? <laughs> Holy cow. So, yeah. So, Frogs uh, in space. A yeah, frogs. <laughs> Wasn't that a Muppet show? Those pigs in space. Pigs in space. <laughs> but I like you know, tadpoles. And, tadpoles uh, and frogs and everything. So, yeah. So, don't forget about our, our, our trusty friend Hubble Telescope. It, it, it's st still sending back. Once you work for NASA, you always work for NASA. That's Just true. Just ask Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> Buzz Aldrin, who yeah. is still kidding, alive and kicking, and he got married for the yeah. fourth time last week. Yeah. <laughs> And lo I love his shirt because he, he quotes the Total Recall. Get your yeah, ass get to your Mars. <laughs> you got any other space news stories for That's us? That's it for us. Oh, so wow. that, that'll close up. That's News in Space. Our weekly look at the uh, happenings in the heavens. Sponsored by my NASA logo hat. It's the worm <laughs> logo. The finest piece of marketing design in all of human spaceflight. Well, you're listening to Little Raleigh Radio, uh, Lawn Darts Radio. This is the North Carolina Music Hour. So Solomon Fox is going to help us catch our composure right now with the song Dreamcatcher. You're tuned into Little Rally Radio. That is John Charles Dwyer out of Asheville with Panthers on the Mountainside. Oop, and, and uh, there we go. We've got another song coming around the corner right now. <laughs> uh, happy Sunday morning to you, and thanks for tuning in to Lawn Darts. And uh, we have... Um, I uh, keep now wanting to call you Bruce, but we've got uh, Bruce Miller, the historian for Oakwood Cemetery, and Robin Simonton, the director of uh, Oakwood, on the uh, virtual airwaves here at Little Raleigh Radio. Get a NASA VR kitten. <laughs> <laughs> join for, us. Join us for the. Join <laughs> us studio. virtually here. <laughs> so you can see these fantastic buttons uh, that they offer as part of their tour kit uh, to support the book. Uh, Life and Death in High Places, uh, the story of the trial of the century in 1903 after uh, Ernest Haywood shot Ludlow Skinner. They're right there on the uh, Fayetteville Street court steps. <laughs> and next time you go to send a post, you can be like, wow, this is where it happened. This is where it all <laughs> happened. Everything changed. One of the things, neat things, I think, um, Let me turn you up just a little bit. Yeah, turn me up a, just a tad. 
I uh, called you loud earlier. You don't need to compensate. <laughs> <laughs> One of the neat things y'all have installed out at Oakwood Cemetery is the wind phone. Yeah. Tell us about that, Robin. Well, the wind phone, um, as you may know, uh, stems from a phone in Japan that was built um, just before the tsunami for um, a young man who had lost his, his cousin. Um, and he built a phone in his garden to be able to call, built a little phone house in his garden to be able to call his cousin on the phone after his death. And then the tsunami happens, and unfortunately, thousands of people are killed, including many school children. Hmm. And after that um, tsunami and things calmed down a bit, um, families began to show up at this man's wind phone to call their loved ones that were lost in the tsunami. Um, wind phones after that began to pop up in places around the world. Um, there's not tons of them. I think there's, but I think there are like 900. I, I originally thought there were far less, but they're, um, they're around the world installed in, in places, people's gardens or parks. Um, I believe according to, um, a cemetery magazine that we may be the first cemetery in America to have one, but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure of that. Um, but I saw a story about a wind phone, um, in somebody, you know, in some area, there's one in Matthews, North Carolina, and I sent it to a friend, um, Ian Dunn from the State Archives, and I asked, could you build me something like this? And he said, oh, I can make it even look better than that one. And, um, and so he built, <laughs> he built me this um, phone, this box out of oak wood, which I thought was very appropriate. He came up with that idea, and he sent me the link to where to buy the phone off of eBay, and he put the whole thing together and installed it for me in the cemetery. Um, we often have people tell us that um, it's difficult for families to talk to their loved ones at the cemetery or just once they're gone, they have a hard time connecting with their lost loved ones. And I think that's a human experience, right? We don't know necessarily how, you know, how to connect with people that we've lost. But I have heard from families that, you know, standing at a grave to talk to your loved one sometimes seems unnatural to folks. Mm -hmm. But talking on a phone is something that um, is a little more natural to us. And so we installed this wind phone in the summer. Um, we didn't have, any, didn't have any signage on it or anything like that. No one asked me what it was. It's not far from my office. Um, no one asked me what it was. It, I never saw anyone really use it. But then I had a really good um, genealogy day in my, with my own family. I mean, usually I'm down in the rabbit hole with Oakwood families. But I had a really good genealogy project one weekend with my own family. I posted a picture of it on my own Facebook page, tagged my cousin, and said, wouldn't it be great if we could call and tell our family what we had found, genealogically speaking? Um, and then it just kind of caught on. I never, you know, it, the people began to come out. Local news stories began, um, news channels and newspapers began to cover it. Um, and even as recent as last week, I, I think I saw a handful of people using it across the time, um, across the week. And so I do see that it provides um, comfort for families. Like, I've gone and... You know, with, with these fancy digital phones, you know, we don't um, dial numbers anymore. Right. I mean, it's not a rotary phone either. It looks like one, but it's not. But I went in the other, I went to the wind phone after I first installed it and dialed my grandmother's number. Oh. She's been gone since 1997. Wow. But, you know, she always made me memorize her phone number. Of course. Um, <laughs> and so I still know it. And it was something very comforting to dial a number that you wouldn't even press in today. You just look up grandma on your phone, you know, yeah. but, but to go and dial a number, that was a comfort. Um, but I do feel like it's really providing a comfort to our families, whether you're an Oakwood family or just someone who lives in the area. Um, I, I do see sometimes there are, you know, like the other day, uh, like three big SUVs came and they all went in line and used the wind phone together, you know, and I, 
it's a great gift I think to have and if it provides comfort for one family then it's done what I wanted it to do that's beautiful that that really is beautiful and I you know <clears throat> I think I told you that um, when we talked about this earlier um, about uh, I've even re recommended it to uh, someone in my group therapy group mm -hmm. <laughs> you know to who's dealing with some you know grief issues mm -hmm. you know it's it's a it's a it's a fantastic way to deal with to deal with um uh, to deal with grief it is it really is and i you know people will come up to me if i'm out on the grounds doing something people come up to me in a vehicle where's the wind phone you know and they're they're teary-eyed and they or people have thanked me profusely after using the wind phone um, that it provides a comfort and it provides a way of working through grief. I mean, do, do I think people will go and use the phone every week to call their grandmother? No. But if they use that phone once um, and it helps them, I mean, I've seen people like lean against the phone, the post the phone booth is on, twi twirl the cord in their fingers like we used to, you know, when we all had kitchen phones, um, you know, and, and just find the comfort from it. And if it helps people work through something, then all the better because we are in a very connected world. And once we've lost someone, we are disconnected. And I had a family recently tell me at the cemetery that they, they said, oh, I know, we thought we heard some cemetery had a phone. And I said, oh, that's us. We have a wind phone. And the woman said, well, I thought you were cool till now, Robin. That's crazy. We don't, you know, why would you call, why would you have a wind phone? And then the widow said, looked at her sister-in-law and said, well, you know, um, she had just lost her husband a few days earlier. She's like, I have called his phone so many times just mm -hmm. to hear his voice or just to feel like I can talk to him. So people are, you know, connecting in one way or another, trying to find that connection. And so if my that phone helps, it helps. When someone's gone, I mean, just having that tactile, like, that's how you know they're still part of you because your body still knows what to do to yeah. reach out to them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I've seen people of all ages use that phone. I'm, I mean, I'm not like scoping it out, but I can see. <laughs> I do keep an eye on it from my office. But you do see people coming in to ask. A lady came in a couple weeks ago with um, two ladies said with long lists of people they were going to call and ask where the wind phone was. So, you know, it's uh, it's meaningful for us. I mean, I'm sentimental about death and loss. I have been my entire life long before I got this job. Um, and I feel like... Um, that's something that could have benefited me at many a time when I've experienced a loss, and I, and I hope that other people um, benefit from it. When and where can uh, folks find this? So the wind phone is um, available whenever the cemetery is open, so 8 to 5, 7 days a week. Um, if you pull in the front gates off of Oakwood Avenue and go through that curvy entrance um, just past the bridge, if you, if you don't turn right on the bridge, but just, cro just go um, straight into the Beechwood section, it's just on the right-hand side by the creek. Wonderful. And if folks, again, uh, want to kind of take the next steps for following the book, um, you, you have some readings coming up. Yeah, you mentioned that you're doing one with the Mordecai House on March 6th yep. at, I'm sorry, you said, was it 7 p.m.? 7 p.m. for the Wake County Historical Society, but at the Mordecai House um, Museum office, March 6th, 7 p.m. And Wake County Public Library, the virtual um, program, March Monday, March 20th at 7 p.m. As um as writing this book changed how you interact with the folks at the cemetery that are buried there, do you feel like it's humanized them more when you take people on these tours? I feel like it has. I also feel like you know when we write this book and when as you read this book, you realize we refer to them in their as their first names because we feel like we know them. 
um, we, we love the story of them. You know, there are no villains here. We say we let the reader determine, you know, um, how they feel about all of this on their own. Um, but I think it, as we walk through the cemetery and give tours and talk about these folks, I think we have a deeper understanding of their lives. And it shows us how much more we can learn about all the folks that are buried at Oakwood Cemetery. We're on a first name basis. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Sometimes nicknames. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> nicknames. <laughs> Very true. Well, Robin Simonton, Bruce Miller, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. We're going to leave you with some Kate Rudy. This is Opacity right here on Little Raleigh Radio.